0: Welcome to another episode of Up To. 10 years ago, Up To started as a live event series showcasing leaders who are as humble as they are successful. The humility piece is extremely important as we identify leaders who can inspire others. We try to focus our interviews on the non-business aspects of their lives. And in doing so, we have found there's a real thirst to explore their hearts and minds in atypical ways. Our host, as always, is Adam Kaufman, and on this episode, we are joined by our special guest, Tim Shriver.
1: If you're a business owner, an executive, or a rising member of a management team, I don't have to tell you about the importance of having team members and partners you can trust. A firm that I've worked with for years and have trusted myself to refer my colleagues to is VividFront an award-winning digital marketing, branding, and website development firm based in Cleveland, Ohio, but with clients all over America. VividFront's focus is on scaling brands digitally. They create holistic return on investment centric strategies and solutions for middle market companies who wanna grow. They do paid advertising, influencer and social media marketing, e-commerce strategies, lead generation websites, I could go on. Their expertise is expansive and their tactful leadership team, all of whom I know, has the entrepreneurial experience to turn ideas into revenue producing business plans. Yes, I am reading a script But I will tell you that I sought Vivid Front out for this podcast because I already believed in them seeing what they did in the marketplace. So if you're seeking a partner to take your business to the next level, or if you're looking for an opportunity to work for a top agency with an amazing culture, truly an amazing culture, check out their website at vividfront.com or send me a note and I'll introduce you to my friends who run the company there. Vivid Front, great organization. Our guest today has led the Special Olympics International Board of Directors for several years and together with six million Special Olympic athletes in more than 200 countries, promotes health, education and a more unified world through the joy of sport. He is also the co-founder of Unite, an initiative to promote national unity and solidarity across differences. Our guest joined Special Olympics in 1996. He's been a leading educator who focuses on the social and emotional factors in learning. He co-founded and currently chairs the Collaborative for Academic, Social, and Emotional Learning, called CASEL, the leading school reform organization in the field of social and emotional learning. I'd like to talk a little bit about that. He's a member of the Council of Foreign Relations. He's co-chairman of the National Commission on Social and Emotional Learning. He's president of the Joseph Kennedy Jr. Foundation member of the Board of Directors of WPP Group, and he's co-founder of Love and Spoonful Ice Cream Company, which I've noticed, sadly, he didn't bring any of today. <laughs> he earned his undergraduate degree from Yale University, a master's from Catholic University here in Washington, and he holds a doctorate in education from the University of Connecticut. He has produced four films, authored the New York Times best-selling book, Fully Alive, which I reread leading up to today, And he has written for dozens of national newspapers and international magazines. On a personal note, and I've never told you this, Tim, the first time I met today's guest, I was attending a talk where he was speaking about the new Fully Alive book to a group of 25 of us hosted by Ambassador Doug Holliday and his Path North group. Now, to be fully authentic... I will say that I went into that session with some preconceived notions about how much I would be interested or not in this particular discussion. I have, for whatever reason, been in front of many impressive leaders over the years in politics and in business, and I just thought, okay, here's another talk uh, by someone who has a book that he's trying to sell. Honestly, I wasn't expecting much, but Tim, seriously, it was the most impactful hour i've ever seen anyone deliver a talk on and i have not stopped thinking about it in the 7 years since then and i've traveled all over the place and have told people that you'll never meet how impactful that one hour was so it really left a mark on me so it's for that Thank reason you. more than even your uh, impressive list of accomplishments that i'm so thrilled to have you today in the studio welcome to the up to podcast Thank you for having me, and very kind of you
2: to say all that. What have you been up to? Uh, well, first of all, I'm surprised. I'm, I'm, not, I'm surprised by your sharing about the, the presentation on, on my book. What I'm not surprised at is how... Effective it is to have low expectations. (laughs) You come in and you don't expect much. And, you know, people are so impressed when they get something much more than they expect. But um, You're being humble. It was tremendous. No, thank you. Your passion was just tremendous. I I, I thank you for that. But in a way, it's an important point because I think sometimes we have low expectations of each other. Sometimes we have low expectations of uh, people in certain categories uh, and low expectations can become, this is something teachers learn very early on. Low expectations can become self-fulfilling. Mm. Uh, you label a child in third grade or sixth grade or ninth grade. You label that child as troubled or uh, irresponsible or boring or disruptive. And before you know it, the whole year starts to go downhill. So uh, in a way, this uh, the work in the Special Olympics movement has taught me this people have quite low expectations. For people with intellectual disabilities. And those low expectations frequently bleed into uh, devaluing expectations. Mm. Mm. Um, so, my joy has been, uh, in part, to be able to tell their stories and surprise people. Uh, I like to say, you know, there's a great title by the brilliant uh, 20th century author C.S. Lewis called Surprised by Joy. And uh, I feel like my career, at least, my, uh, my professional life, has been one series after another of experiences where I've been surprised by joy. And it's um, uh, it, it, uh, it never gets old. So anyway, that's not what I'm up to, but that's what your yeah. introductory remarks yeah, well, uh, uh, brought out. Yeah,
1: well, I surprised you with that, yeah. that comment, <laughs> yeah. so I, I hope it's okay that I was being authentic. Absolutely. But I, Absolutely. I wanted to, to get... Uh, people focus real quickly on how impressed I was because I've had a lot of guests and we've covered a lot of different topics. But uh, one of the things I often ask our guests is, was your career path set out for you early on? A lot of folks grow up in a family where there's one path, you got to be a doctor or you got to be a business owner like dad was. Your family pedigree is a little different than most families. Were you able to pursue what you wanted to or was there some nudging in certain directions early on maybe in high school or what you yeah. majored in, in college like what were those early years of career development well,
2: like well i think you know the the most impactful way in which i was uh, the most impactful part of my upbringing uh, was the extent to which my parents the ways in which my parents my both my mom and my dad Engaged all of us, my siblings. I'm the middle of five children, okay. so I have two older siblings and two younger siblings. But we were always engaged in what felt like the work of social change. But we weren't engaged in it in an abstract sense. My mom ran a summer camp for children with intellectual disabilities. We were campers and counselors and arts and crafts station workers. And my dad uh, helped launch the Peace Corps, and we would go and visit Peace Corps sites and work for the day at a Peace Corps site. I, when I was 16, spent a summer at a Peace Corps site in Guatemala uh, building houses after a devastating earthquake had had hit that country in the uh, mid-70s. So my parents very much emphasized getting in the game, not watching it. Mm Which game we decided to get in was more open. That's uh, good. But being in the game, in some ways, was not optional. We uh, Engagement. We had to be, uh, you know, if my mother walked into the house and saw us watching TV, she would sneer and scowl and get on to yourself and mm-hmm. what are you doing there? And outside, you know, move, play, you know, get active. My dad, the same way, almost uh, irresistibly active, um, professionally and personally. So we were... I think the headline was, uh, "Be a person in the arena." You know that f- brilliant Teddy Roosevelt. Roosevelt, yeah, uh, on the back and, of all my cards. Yeah, right. So you know that the you know w- there was no timid uh, bystander in mm-hmm. my upbringing. Having said that, um, you know there was a lot of emphasis in my house on politics. There was a lot of emphasis in my house on political action, action on the large stage. You know, I had obviously uh, people. Most people uh, are aware. You know. Uh, senators in my family, too, during my lifetime, a president When my early childhood. So there was a great deal of emphasis on political action for civil rights, for human rights, for women's rights, for peace, for fighting poverty, for promoting uh, equity and equality, uh, for education, for health care, for deinstitutionalization. The list went on and on. And my parents were active in all of those areas Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. many respects. I chose to be active, Uh, I chose the path, it really came to me uh, accidentally, but I I chose to become a teacher, um, because I was more interested, honestly, in the inner life of change than I was in the political life of change. Individual over policy. I wanted to meet people Mm face-to-face, and I wanted to understand what was burning within them, what was blocking what was burning within them, what was the pain points, where were the hope points. Um, And so education just seemed like all that story that I saw in the background of civil rights and social justice and uh, I wanted to see eye to eye, heart to heart, Mm. if you will. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I spent the first decade, more than a decade, a decade and a half of my career in public education, in urban public education. Not because I was obsessed with teaching Shakespeare or the Civil War or the placement of the comma or other kinds of things like that that I did teach a little bit, um, but because I was obsessed with young people and what could happen in a school. Could a school all of a sudden struck me? A school, you have 13 years of 10 months a year with a child. There's no institution even close to really get your
1: arms around people.
2: I mean... healthcare you have the person an hour every six months, six weeks, or three months, or six months, nothing wrong with it. But it's just struck me that schools were the place Hmm. that you could have an impact on Mm -hmm. children, on families, on communities, um, if you did it right. So that's what drew me into education and drew me into the helping to build the field of social and emotional learning and drew me
1: really ultimately into my life's work. Do you think back, were there ever moments, though, where you were wondering, should I go? classroom by classroom or should I do something different should I start a business I feel like you probably had the skill set where you could have gone several different directions and you were probably stimulated by outside people professionally flirting with you about different ideas and opportunities like how did you filter through in those early years a lot of a lot of the up to podcast listeners tell me how they love hearing how people make their career choice decisions well I did it
2: a lot on gut I I think gut and human relationships, I tell my kids, don't pick a job because of the title, and don't pick a job, at least initially, because of the compensation. Uh, Pick a job because of the person you work with. Okay. Um, uh, When I graduated from college, I had a teaching certification, and I was starting to apply to school districts uh, uh, to uh, have an entry-level teaching position. I had worked during the summers before graduating with... uh, with a guy who was running an after-school, a, a, a summer program and a compensatory ed program called Upward Bound.
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, Upward with Bound. students from New yeah.
2: Haven and Hartford. It still exists? It still exists, yeah. It's fantastic. And uh, this guy was just stun, stunned. just just mesmerized me. When I saw him with kids, I'd we, talk to a student and say X or Y or Z, and it would go in one or not out the other. My colleague Bob would walk up, and the kid would just... Uh, Lex, uh,
1: how, like you were with me during that one-hour talk. I guess that's right,
2: uh, and and he would speak, and young people would listen. I was fascinated, so so I was applying. I I wrote to Bob. I in those days called him on the telephone. It sounds old fashioned, mm-hmm. uh, and said, "Look, I'd love to work." You know, he said, "We only have a part time job." I said, "Well, I'll take it." Take it if I can get it. Well, you have to interview. And so I interviewed, and I got a half-time job working in the Upward Bound program. And I supplemented my the rest of my, and then six months later, it turned into a full-time job. But I went for Bob. I went to the job because uh, I thought he could teach me what I really wanted to know, which is how to speak in a way that reflected the heart, the soul, the capacity to
1: connect with another human being. So you were willing to take being. a half-time position, therefore half the money and maybe it's not the ideal first job but because of him because of him yeah it was really uh, honestly it was a
2: hundred percent I mean I I got another halftime job almost immediately and you know mm-hmm. when you're young you're you 20 make it 21 work. you can yeah. make it work you've yeah. got I got uh evening job at a costume store and stuff like that which was fantastic so I had a lot of experiences but um but I went for him I went for him and uh and uh, the the three and a half years later I, I left and to take a one-year leave of absence. In those days, that's what I thought I was going to be doing, to go to work for Jim Comer at the Yale Child Study Center. He was teaching and writing about the impact, the, the intersection between psychology and mental health strategies and education. Mm. And again, I, was, I read his book, and I thought to myself, man, I need to learn what this guy understands. He understood families. He understood... Mm the friction between schools and uh, and families. He understood the tension that parents feel. He, he was explaining to me how difficult it was for families to feel an affinity with schools. And all of a sudden, I, I was just lighting up with, oh my god, that's what's going on. Mm-hmm. And so I knocked on his
1: door, same thing. But see, this is your humility. Let me interrupt, because I want to showcase here already two different examples of two different men older than you in your field of desired interest that you were humble enough to say, I want to learn from these people. Oh, I wasn't humble enough. I was, I was starving. I saw people that, and I
2: still feel this way, honestly, I, I, you know, the, the, the groups we've been involved in, I, I'm in the room with people and I hear this person and I hear that. I'm like, Oh my God, listen to him. They whisper to to me about you that way though. That's That's the humility again. That's (laughs) very kind. But, um, But I, so I think when you're, especially when you're young in your 20s and 30s, but I I feel this way in my 60s, I I gravitate towards people. Mm much more than to a specific lane. So my career looks like it's me, you know, I spent some time in education, then a little bit of time in child development, and then a little time in religion and spirituality, and a little time in disability rights. And people say, well, are you a disability rights advocate? Well, yes, I am. Or are you a That's educator? One of your yes, yeah. I am. Right. But to me, it's all of Thread. Uh, mm. I'm interested in how to unlock the gift, uh, The uh, cause one as another one of my mentors said, the unimaginable beauty that lies within each of us. Mm. Uh, uh, We are each more beautiful than we dare imagine. And if we see that in others, it's because we've seen it in some humble way within ourselves and we can mirror it back to other people. To me, that's when the lights start to flash. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Now, how did you make the decision? I think a lot of people would know you most with your Special Olympics affiliation. Yeah. Was that a huge decision to take that on full bore? I mean, I mean it I, was. I, I never
2: thought, you know, my mom was there. Uh, I was living in Connecticut. I was very happy in the school system. Uh, my mom had, was, is the founder of the Special Olympics movement. I never saw myself as being in, the fam- in a family business. Um, but I was in my mid-30s, and uh, my wife and I, we had four kids. Uh, my parents were getting older. And uh, there was some political trouble in the New Haven school system, which I won't go into. And it seemed like there was a moment in which a change might make sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I kind of consciously, and for those people who are in family businesses or have been around family, sh- you know, f- some families cast a big shadow. Um, a lot of patriarchs of private businesses. All, yeah, right. all that stuff. And, and, you know, I talk to people all the time and say, well, you know, I... I went into this because my father was in it, but I knew I'd never measure up. You know, we all kind of... Yeah, heavy. ...have that heavy mm-hmm. kind of... Uh, it's not really humility. It's really self... Uh, it's a weight. It's a weight. And it's a, it's a sense in which um, it, it's a lack of self-esteem. Uh, I guess that's an overly used term. But um, so I thought to myself, and I did this consciously. I thought to myself, you know, if I go to Special Olympics... People are going to say to me, isn't that sweet? Hmm.
1: Well, you said people say,
2: that's nice. It's that's nice. nice. It's nice. And that bothered you? It bothers me, uh, but I knew they were going to be saying it not just about the movement. That it, it, that made me angry. When they said it about me, I was ready for it. So I, I kind of, if you will, uh, became aware of the idea that I would be seen by others as uh a small actor in a family drama. Hmm. Uh, But I knew what I was going for, which was not to be a small... Your motivation was was different. My motivation was different. So even today, people... Like yesterday, I was at an event. It was so nice that you've helped carry on the family legacy. That's after 26 years of work. Hmm. I I, I don't see myself as carrying on yeah. the family legacy, the next but I don't, I, I don't begrudge the person who said that to me, and I understand why they said it, and they said it out of you know extraordinary respect for my mom and my dad and who I love to death, mm-hmm. so it's all good. I just had to know from within myself what I was doing so that I wouldn't be excessively buffeted by um, feeling diminished or, you know, the psychological term is infantilized Mm. by the perception that would exist uh, around uh, that work. So, you know, these are, uh, you know, to be able to uh, hold your own within a family structure, uh, to love it but not need it, to be a part of it, but also to be, have one's own sense of identity uh, separate from it. These are, you know, tensions that we all face that, uh, because families are always moving, right? The one constant thing about,
1: the one constant in a family is it's changing. And even though your mother started this, you probably were going to be making your own mark. And maybe you would make decisions within the, quote, business, unquote, of Special Olympics to do it a little bit differently. And there's a weight that comes with that. Well, here's how we used to do it. Yeah. You know, Dr. Shriver. Yeah.
2: Well, you do. I mean, any, any chief executive has that responsibility and I had it no differently than others. I, I did do one thing, which I, which I feel was the right thing to do. A lot of chief executives will come in and say, that was then this is now, uh, you know, we got to get rid, you know, there were so many problems, you you hear this all the time. I took over the company and Mm -hmm. I found out that nothing was working here and that the numbers were wrong there and that the people were misplaced there and that somebody had been hired and there was contracts galore Mm -hmm. over And, you know, I had to clean the whole damn thing up. Well, I felt like the leadership message I wanted was this movement is enormously strong and our challenge is to make it stronger. Mm. And I don't think that diminished the importance of my role, but it didn't enhance my role at the expense of the role of my predecessors. The movement's bigger than the That's current right. CEO. That's right. And the movement is as big as we can make it now. But to make it big, we don't have to dump on the people that came before us. Good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I think this is part of what I That's also, a rare mentality. Well, it's, it, one of the reasons it's rare is because we don't really have in our culture, in my view, we don't have much of a culture of respect for elders. Mm. You know, indigenous c- communities, many other communities uh, have an enormously important role for elders. We tend to be like out of sight, out of mind. You know, like as soon as you retire, and we kind change of laugh the nameplates. And, yeah. you know, if somebody said, if you go to a big company and say, oh, I knew the CEO in the 1990s, they'll be like, oh, we don't even know who that is. Mm-hmm. Who, who, who did you know? Or, right. you know, or by the way, that's not what we do anymore. Here's who's in charge now. or Here's who the, who controls the budget today. I get it. I get that we have to move on, but I felt like the strength of a movement like Special Olympics, in part, was going to draw from the extent to which people saw themselves as in a line of great thinkers Mm. and believers and Mm -hmm. actors and change agents, not as breaking away from the greatness of the past, but actually standing on the shoulders of great people. And so I tried to tried to lead the organization from that perspective. Doesn't mean we didn't make big changes. We, we we have, and we did, and the movement will make big changes when I'm gone, I hope, you know, but it doesn't have to make those ch- changes by um,
1: humiliating our, our predecessors. What you're describing kind of reminds me of the church model and how elders in a church, yeah. they create some continuity from the past. That's right. And we should be deferential to these elders and usually there's some their titular position that's respected it kind of reminds me of that and in a company you're right a new ceo comes in a new board of directors come in sometimes changes are made just because they want to make their mark that's right but there's not a lot of continuity unless you're at the more subordinate level of the workers who stayed constant it's almost or even like like the u.s state department if there's a new uh secretary of state but the, the the desk workers stay the same right Right. Yeah, that's
2: interesting. But the I- desk workers are typically have to be insulated from leaders because they don't want to be buffeted every 20 minutes by right. a new leader, right? right? Which I understand. Same thing happens in schools. You know, a lot of teachers, well, here comes the new fad. The mayor wants this, or the new superintendent, new principal wants this, wants that, some fad. Mm-hmm. The teacher is just like, keeps my door shut. I, yeah. I don't, I'm not going to get buffeted by all that. I get it. Um, but what we miss sometimes uh, in looking backwards is the bigger picture. Hmm. You know, because somebody in their sixties or seventies or eighties or nineties tends to see the world a little less as a function of the moment mm-hmm. and a little bit more a function of the bigger ideas that are in play. What's the longer arc of change here?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: That's a really valuable
1: gift right. to have. You don't want to blow that life. off, that institutional history.
2: And and just you know, how do I see this a little higher altitude? Mm-hmm where do I fit in the American story? Not where do I fit in the Virginia story, or the podcast story, or the Special Olympics story, in my case, but where do I fit in you know, the American story, in, in my tradition, in the Catholic story, or the Baptist story, mm-hmm. or the Muslim story? Or whatever. Where do I fit in the planetary story? You know, how do I become an agent of hope and change for people around me that will be three or four or five generations from now?
1: Mm. Legacy, a little bit. Impact. Yeah, yeah. No impact. Uh, legacy. Right, right. And who, who, who was the potato farmer
2: who, in 1840, was, you know, struggling to feed himself or herself mm-hmm. in Ireland? Who is my, who, who is still giving that gift to me mm-hmm. of the resilience and the strength and right. the get, and the grit to take, pick up his. His his family. How do you if think could. you're doing
1: with that question? Are you think you're doing well, pretty well? Well, I love
2: to live in it. You yeah. know, I think it's a big. I think it's a big distinguisher because I think, especially now, you know, people are reactive in the moment. You know, did you see what happened today? Uh, breaking news. You know, what what the breaking news half the time is, you know, uh, an update from yesterday. Yeah, an update something. from yesterday yeah, about right. somebody who you know uh, the quarterback uh, didn't sprain his yeah, ankle. Yeah. He you know he broke his ankle. Or breaking... a Twitter
1: news. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
2: Uh, so I think pulling back a little bit, mm-hmm. I think it's good for the soul. I'm mm-hmm. sure of that. I think it's good for the mind. Um, people are so uh, battered by distraction and anxiety, and I understand why. Sometimes just a deep breath and a shutting down of the immediate story and the tapping into the bigger story. But that's, this is what gr- grandparents do for us. Um, This is what elders do for us, Uh, so I just feel like
1: in organizations it's important not to throw them out. I'm grateful that Calfee, Halter, and Griswold has once again agreed to partner with us. With offices in Ohio and Washington, D.C., this full-service national law firm focuses on all aspects of business and the law, including corporate and finance, intellectual property, and government relations. Let me be clear, I actually approach companies with whom I would like to partner. We just don't accept marketing dollars from anyone. I have been referring my CEO and entrepreneur friends to Calfee for years. I really believe in the firm. One of their notable practice areas is in mergers and acquisitions. And recently, for instance, I introduced a successful entrepreneur in the Midwest to Calfee when he told me that a European-based conglomerate wanted to buy his business. Calfee works with large corporations as well as privately held companies throughout the U.S. and Canada and in Europe and Asia, too. So whether it's selling your own business or the more routine needs of creating your first will or anything in between, this firm can really do it all in terms of legal needs. Once again, the firm is Calfee, Halter & Griswold, and you can find them at calfee.com or on the Foundation website. I was preparing for today, I saw your commencement address at Georgetown, and you talked about the value of being silent in the morning. Mm -hmm. So how did you learn how to be silent? That is such a rare activity in today's world. What does being silent do for you? I've I've been on a silent retreat before, just to experience here with you for a moment, I was intimidated by the idea of being silent for for four nights, Mm -hmm. and it was this uh, Catholic retreat in southern Louisiana, rural Louisiana. Mm -hmm. And at my table, Tim, was and even at the meals at the table it was silent. But at my table was Tom Benson, the then owner of the New Orleans Saints, he's passed away now, and also the editor of the Times Picune newspaper. And I thought if those big guys can be silent, little old me, I can I can put my phone down for a right. few days, but it, it was again an exercise in humility. But what what does silence do for you on that daily basis if that's part of your morning ritual? Yeah.
2: Well um Silence, And ironically, is,
1: we're going to be talking about silence yeah, on the show. Yeah, we're talking but, about silence. <laughs> yeah, but, right, right. Uh,
2: I, I think, I'm going to say something that's going to sound arrogant. I think that the practice of silence is an essential practice uh, for opening up the best within yourself and in others. Hmm. Now, you say, well, there's a lot of other things. I like nature. Or I like... Television, or I relax by books, therapy, books, uh, yoga, mm-hmm. many, many, many other things, and they're all wonderful. I don't, I, I don't, I'm not putting any practice that people have in their lives down. Uh, I don't know of any tradition, any it, certainly any of the great traditions, the Hindu tradition, the Buddhist tradition, the Jewish tradition, the Muslim tradition, the Christian tradition. They all seem to point at certain points to the practice of silence as the That's true. center of transformational energy. Mm-hmm. Now, why is that? I'm not going to try to describe it excessively, except to recommend it. Uh, in my The tradition I learned in my 20s was called centering prayer, but there's Christian meditation, there's yogic and Buddhist mindfulness kinds of schools, and transcendental meditation, and Many other, there's, uh, uh, there are many traditions. There's whirling. Uh, yeah, TM you know. is really big in the business world now on Wall Street, Transcendental yeah, Meditation. Yeah, yeah. There, there's, there's many of these. The, the one thing they have in common is trying to release the thoughts of the mind and withdraw to a space wh- which is either God or silence or emptiness or whatever. It's a fundamental detachment strategy so that you can disengage from the immediate thoughts, the discursive mind, the binary mind, the dualistic. There's a lot of different words. But you pull back from the mind energy and tap, open, listen for the heart energy. The heart energy. Heart energy. It it is very fragile, that part of of our collective experience, the soul. I mean, people have different words. But it's not discursive, it's not words. Words split, this is a cup, this is a table, they're not the same, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. So I'm separating, these are glasses, this is a book, this is a phone, this is a pen. My mind is working really well when it does that. (laughs) But it doesn't tell me the full story of you and me. It doesn't tell us the full story of what we're hoping for out of life, that part of my thinking. That has to come, one of my teachers, Cynthia Bourgeau says, not to see wholeness, but to see from wholeness. Mm. So the lens has to change if we want to see the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey used to say. Mm. Um, and I think silence is a, uh, I dare say, a proven strategy for equipping us to see from wholeness, not just to see from uh,
1: the parts. One of my favorite Catholic thinkers talks about it in terms of collapsing within oneself. Mm. And the visual of that collapsing within oneself helps me because I'm not good at the silence. My wife yeah. actually teaches Christian yoga. Mm. And I am so bad at turning off my yeah. mental to-do lists, yeah. and that's, that's horrible of me. It sounds like you've created a good practice of turning off your busy to-do list for It's the not horrible of you. Uh, all I would suggest. Can you and, call you know, my wife and tell her? And a, <laughs> a lot of people
2: may have heard me say, "Well, how dare you? I don't like silence. It Doesn't work for me. I could, you know, I have friends. You went on a silent retreat, Tim. I was like, yeah, it was. I couldn't last three minutes. Right. And I couldn't last five minutes. And I, I'm not judging. God forbid, I'd be judging. But I'm not suggesting that um, what I'm saying here is a necessarily good advice for everybody. All I would say is that your list mind. If even for, and I'm going to say this and maybe it won't make sense. If even for one breath, and I mean literally one breath, if you can let the mind that's making the list, just release it for one Mm. good breath, Mm. I think you won't find that you're, as you said, horrible of you to be all in the list. You'll just find that the
1: list is now a part of you, not all of you. That's good that's coaching, <laughs> and that's encouragement. That's similar to what our mutual friend Doug Holiday said. He said, "Start small. Try to get to one minute. You don't have to do it for yeah. a half an hour. Yeah. Start with an hour." I mean, I one- can
2: do twenty minutes twice a day, and I might get one good breath. Huh. Okay, so you're human. You're still working I at this. might get, I, I always, I, I mean, this has been the advice I've given to myself. And I'm sitting there and I'm in my 15th minute and I'm still making lists. <laughs> and I'm still reminding myself of why such and such is a jerk. And I'm right. still thinking to myself, you're not going to get this done because mm. you're too stupid. Mm. And I'm still thinking to myself, you have never been able to plan or react or talk to your kids the right way. I'm still making all oh, my gosh. lists. And then I get one
1: good breath. And okay. I think it's good encouragement. <laughs> One of the things you're also working on is I was reading a little bit about dignity and the dignity index. Yeah, I had just heard launched last uh, week. Yes. We just launched it. Okay, it's so four wh- days old. Wh- why does dignity matter, or why is it underappreciated? Well, I think we've we've created uh, a culture in
2: which it pays to be hateful and contemptful to other people. It makes you famous. It makes you rich. It makes you powerful the angrier and the more uh, divisive you are, the more likely you are to get tweets followed, the more likely you are to get picked up by other people. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we've created an incentive structure that rewards, uh, if I can say this, the most divisive parts of our nature. That's true. Uh, But most people don't realize they're guilty of the problem. They mostly say, you know those people. Yeah. they're ruining the country. They're full. They're they're they they're uneducated, or they're elitists, or they have no values, or they have no faith, or they have no intelligence, mm-hmm. or they have no decency, or they have no honesty, or they're demagogues. Now, all those all of those things we say about other people, but we don't realize how contemptful our language is, hmm. how much. And people say well no i don't hate them they're just horrible people and and all so what we're trying to do is awaken people it's a little bit like a silence trick uh pull back just a little bit and see what you're doing so you become the viewer you become the director of the movie not just the actor in Who, it who's the we in this dignity? this is our our small team uh at unite it's led by my colleague tom Rauchert, who's a Brilliant writer and great speech writer. Uh, okay. uh, and So the group ignite is doing this dignity. Unite, unite. Mm-hmm. Although okay. ignite would be a good term for okay. it. Uh, we have a, our colleague who's running the project. It's a small pilot in Utah right now, uh, in the where we're, we're 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 evaluating speech in the congressional and the senate uh, races in Utah, starting oh. uh, late last week. Okay. So we're going to rate speech, not according to its policy dimensions, not according to where you are on abortion rights or reproductive rights or immigrant rights or um, faith-based issues or religious freedom or education choice or whatever it is, none of that, just on the extent to which the speech you use to describe your opponent is either leans toward hatred and contempt or it leans toward unity and dignity. Hmm. And what we have found, even in a few weeks, Adam, just playing around with this, is when people see the scale and they start to use it, the first thing that happens is they go home and they talk to their son or their wife or their husband or their neighbor or their cousin or their caretaker in a different way. That's progress, right there. That's right. So yeah. we're we're hopeful that just a little awareness uh, of the power of the extent to which hatred and contempt have overtaken the way we think we solve problems. Because you ask people, how are we going to solve the problem? Let's just pick a problem, doesn't matter, immigration, whether you're on the right or the left. I was going
1: to say male hair loss,
2: but yeah, immigration OK, male, male, male pattern baldness, you yeah. can say that. How, how, but, but on political issues, most people have an unstated theory of change. And their theory of change is, on immigration, we will solve the problem when I destroy the opposition. Mm. And on divisive issues, that means that you're out to get at least 40%, maybe sometimes it's 50% of the country, and you're out to prove them to be fools, imbeciles, whatever word you want to use. And what we don't realize
1: is that that theory of change is almost guaranteed not to work. I like the big idea. it reminds me a little bit of how the Pinocchio Index or like the truth. Yes, right. The, the, right. the truth measurements, right. left they, or right, that's is, right, is this factually accurate? That's right.
2: And those have been, I think, quite helpful. Yeah. They, they, don't, they don't demand that Joe Biden or Donald Trump behave differently. But they hold us to some extent accountable yeah. as voters right. for looking at the truth of what's being said. The po- political figure just said that X is you know, 10%. The question is: Is that true? Mm-hmm. Is, is, is he or she actually citing? Yeah, a I statistic like to That's accurate?
1: That's, right. that's the word I was looking for. Right. Yeah.
2: So the fact checkers have their role. Where the where the contempt checkers?
1: You're you're the um, <laughs> yeah the golden rule. Um, that's barometer. right. We're trying, Do unto others as you want done to you. It's as simple as that. It's as simple as that, but
2: it's even more important now, as I say, because I think we can't solve problems of the whole without. Having the whole work to solve the problem. So, if we think we're going to solve yeah. the problems like immigration or any of these big issues by splitting the country in two and throwing half of the country into the ocean, it's just not going to work. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, uh, you don't have to be idealistic here. We don't have to be religious. We don't have to be spiritual. We don't have to be nice. We just have to be practical. So it's then,
1: not working. Then the goal would be to have other, uh, you're testing it right now with the Utah elections other states or other municipalities we're hoping or news you agencies know you, you, you heard on. it here first we're yes.
2: hoping in uh, 2024 to have a full-blown uh, national capacity to evaluate and if we get the machine learning on this right we'll be you'll be able to Pick up, uh, you know, the school board hearing in uh, hmm. Missoula, Montana, and see what people said last night and see how it rates. I, I mean, love, I, love that, that. I don't know if we'll get there in two no. years, but that's our well, it's hope. a
1: big idea. I mean, you're a big idea human being, and you're blessed with a big idea platform, so at least you're using it for some We're really trying. Trying. big We're trying. ideas. I think everybody in the country
2: right now, uh, I'll say this might sound a little arrogant, I think we all have to put our effort into... Uh, finding ways to solve problems uh, mm-hmm. with dignity. I, I, I don't know whether this is going to be the one that works or not. I believe it can. But I every, we need everybody on this
1: one. Well, speaking of solving problems, I was asking someone I really respect uh, earlier today, what's a good question I should ask you? And his question Uh-oh. to me, no, it's a, I like the question. That's why I'm willing to ask it. Uh, your work for so many years with the Special Olympics Movement That's a big problem you were trying to solve or a big subject you're trying to address. Do you think we've improved in America? I'll just stick with America in that category. How far along are we? How much more do we have to do? Well, I like, you know, uh,
2: John Lewis, the late, great John Lewis said, if you don't think things have changed, you haven't lived my life. Mm, Yeah. Um, Civil that's also the, Congressman from Georgia. That's right. Uh, who was beaten uh, mercilessly during the, his younger years and imprisoned and um, uh, and so on. Uh, in the field of intellectual disability, look. The, when I celebrated my tenth birthday, there were two hundred thousand Americans in institutions for life. Two hundred thousand. Nineteen sixty-nine. Uh, we had more people living and put into institutions for life because of their disability than at any other time in our history, more than during the eugenics period of the early uh, Hmm. 20th century, more than during World War II, when the influence of the Nazi uh, um, uh, uh, hatred and venom uh, was leaking into this field of intellectual disability. uh, today, we don't have any. Virtually no one lives in an institution. Certainly no one lives in an institution, uh, the likes of which we had in uh, in the 1950s and 60s and, and earlier than that. Uh, in those days, uh, almost no one with, let's say, Down syndrome went to school. And if they did go to school, they went to a uh, isolated or secluded school, a segregated school. Today, the vast majority of people with Down syndrome or Williams syndrome- Public schools, go yeah. Go to public schools. Right. Uh, um, in those days, there was no jobs, uh, there was no residential communities, there were very little in the way of recreational hopes and supports, uh, there was very little in the in, in medicine even, you know, um, so we've made a lot of progress, a lot of progress, but we have a long way to go. I was just talking to colleagues up in New York, and there, in the New York City schools, there is still a district that is exclusively a segregated district for children with special needs. Hmm just is not uh, optimal. It's mm-hmm. just not the best way to educate a child. And it's certainly not the best way to educate children who don't have disabilities about the diverse human family we live in to be so afraid of having them grow up with their peers that we isolate them from them. I mean, think of the lesson, right? Those people are so different. They can't come to my school. They're so different. I
1: shouldn't play with them. They're so different. They don't belong where I belong. That's, that's one of the things you taught me is the joy That non-special needs, and forgive me if I'm not using the right words, uh, kids can gain from being around the special needs kids. I mean, we're all freed by understanding and believing that we're all
2: gifted and we're all blessed. I mean, it is the great freedom. (laughs) Uh, And to know that not only is everyone else sacred, but so are we. And someone needs to tell us over and over again mm-hmm. that it's no, there's no boundary here. God. I mean, if you put this in religious language, every person is a manifestation of God's grace. I was thinking that in my head. I didn't want yeah. to... Well, I mean, look. I don't know what your whether your audience likes that language or doesn't. Uh, That's who you are, though. It's who I am, and and if you don't like the language, you can say every person deserves dignity or every person deserves their rights. We're all creatures of God. We're all we're all temples of the Holy Spirit. That's my dad's language. Mm, Okay. Uh, I'll defer to your father. uh, uh, But no. But the point is, it's liberating to believe that. You're right. It's liberating for all of us. So to see you know when we do these we have unified sports teams now we call unified sports half the team has an intellectual challenge the other te- other half doesn't so they're playing basketball for their local high school mm. and when they have the pep rally and the school is all in the gym and the special Olympics team charges in and the guy who's five two with down syndrome charges in in his varsity jersey mm. playing because he's ready for the basketball game the school the kids go nuts mm. And the cheerleaders go nuts and the band goes nuts. And the, even, the fac- even the teachers are like beaming. Because here's this guy and he's telling you everybody in this school, look at me. With utter I joy. I am as right. gifted and as excited and as joyful as anybody. Why are you trapped behind that wall of mm. fear and anxiety? Crack yourself. I'm not putting words in that young man or young woman's mouth, but I can tell you. Uh, The healing that comes to all of us from welcoming those who we think we can't, who we think just in the back of our heads, Mm. not that guy. Uncomfortable, right. Not that guy. Mm -hmm. Because when you shut that guy out, you shut a little part of yourself out. Mm. And when you welcome that guy in, all of you gets in. So... Uh, we think this is an, the central urgency of our time is to educate and promote this sense of universal dignity. So we're trying to do it in Special Olympics. We're trying to do it with the Dignity Index.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: We're trying to do it in um, in many different ways. And uh, I'm just really excited to well, be here. Well, your, your work. passion
1: just exudes, you know. Uh throughout every sentence of this uh, summary here. I uh, wanted to ask you a little bit about a slightly different topic, technology. Most of my time is spent in technology, my day job, so to speak, and in venture work. And I read an article where you were quoted about the positive aspects of technology, AI specifically in helping to address the teaching Uh, shortfalls in America in terms of number of teachers. And I was a little bit surprised to see you there, but maybe the journalist came to you because you're an expert in in education, which therefore makes sense. But how do you think about technology? Well, I think the great gift of
2: technology from an educator perspective is the capacity to personalize. Uh, If you and I were in a math class together and we're both doing long division, we may learn it in a very similar way, but we may learn it in very different ways. And I may slow down when it comes to the third uh, digit in the long division and you may speed up when you get to that part and uh, when I slow down and you speed up what invariably happens is I go uh-oh mm. I'm not as smart as Adam and Adam uh, raises his hand he's got the answer earlier than I do and i I go uh-oh and they say well how did you do well I'm still on number four out of mm. ten you've finished all ten mm. um now what invariably happens is the normative, the, the, the teacher's trying to hold the group together. She, she or he has 30, 25, 30 kids, right? right? So Adam finishes, a couple of other kids finish, I didn't finish, the teacher is forced to move us on as a group. What or, techni- or
1: slow down, excuse or me. Or slow down. To help the if people necessary. not That's yet correct. done, and That's that hurts correct. the people already done. That's correct. Another problem. Yep, absolutely. What
2: technology can do is complement the relationships in the classroom, the dynamic between teacher and student with the capacity to personalize or individualize. So the teacher can say, okay, Adam, great class, great. Tim, I'm plugging you into, here's your password. I want you to spend a few minutes here. And all of a sudden a screen pops up for me that finds what I've done, Mm. looks at the mistakes I've made and helps me see goes back maybe two or three steps, and realizes that I'm having trouble with my nines or trouble with yeah, my sixes. More or, customized or, learning. Yeah. And then I can maybe catch up if in, in the ideal world. But if I don't catch up, I can continue to follow that path, that, that more individualized path that will help me learn math at the pace at which optimizes for me now. Uh, so I think that's the great, the, the great risk is that technology can find us enclosed in our screens
1: and robbed of the human dimension of learning, which is the source code of everything that matters. Right. I recently uh, was asked uh, at Oberlin College in Ohio, uh, the Entrepreneurship Center asked me to guest teach one class one day Mm -hmm. uh, on private equity because I'm in venture capital. And I said, private equity, that's such a boring topic. They can just Google (laughs) and come up with countless... Right. Uh, articles about private equity. I said, I like to talk about relationship equity. Mm-hmm. And the director was like, relationship equity? What is that? Like, right. I I just created something brand new, right. relationships. Right. Sure. And so I, I tested these themes in this one-hour session. And I didn't know how these sharp, you know, Oberlin's a good school, these yeah. really sharp kids, I didn't know how they would take it. They stood in line for like an hour. I'm not trying to be boastful, but rather to prove your point, they Stood in line for an hour to ask me follow up questions because no one's teaching them about right. relationships. Right,
2: um, because they saw in you someone they wanted. It's just like what I said at the beginning. They see in you someone, my God, that guy knows something I want to know. Where is he going? Where's, can I work for him? I'm back. So bat- I was glad,
1: <laughs> but I, there's a, yeah. it's sad, there's a thirst for learning about relationships yeah. in the digital age. That's right. Back to this question about technology and yeah. teaching. And-
2: well, that's why we think social, what we call social and emotional learning, SEL, is so important.
1: Yeah, I uh, wanted to in ask SEL, you about that. SEL,
2: we actually teach children listening skills, we teach children feelings identification skills, okay. we teach children stress regulation skills we teach children how to create plans for themselves that will minimize i was in a class just last uh, two weeks ago in new york where the teacher was doing an orientation and she's the part of the orientation was to have everyone identify their pet peeves Hmm. so you have on the wall this was about 16 kids in the class everybody has identified their pet peeve things Hmm. that really trigger them and then the 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 room collaborates in identifying strategies to respond when a pet peeve is done. So someone says, well, I get my pet peeve is when people don't listen to me.
1: So how do you cope with that?
2: How do you cope with that? How do you strategize around it? In that particular classroom, they're building a sense of trust between the students that I can say, I have a pet peeve. Mm -hmm. You can help me figure out what I can do if that happens in class. And as a result, I look at you as someone I trust and value because mm. you've heard me mm. and you've responded to me at the level that matters to me. Now, that's something that never happened when I was in school. Mm. Right. It's, it's and a-, a lot of the kids you're describing at Oberlin aren't hearing that lesson taught because they're not hearing how to do that in the workplace. They're not listening. They're not learning how to be active listeners. They're not learning how to manage stress. They're not learning how to speak with agency, but without hostility. I mean, these are all things that you can actually teach. Um, so we think this is really important for this day and age because trust is the coin of the realm, and we don't have much of it now. we got to build it back up. The way to build trust is first to build relationships.
1: And the dignity that you're working on, so many exciting things. Yeah. What, what, are you, what are you looking out towards in the future, maybe a little bit longer term? Like, what are you most excited about? longer term not next month or what you're doing this afternoon what, what well i
2: you? i i mean i'm so excited i mean i people think i have add i don't really have add but i do have uh a lot of curiosity about the future look adam i think uh, our religious traditions are going to be reinvented in the next hundred years i don't think we're going to lose them but i think they're going to change dramatically mm. i can't wait i can't wait to see the emergence of a deeply spiritual almost mystical christianity mm. As the norm, not mm-hmm. as the you know, weirdo off in some monastery, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. as the norm. I can't wait to see the emergence of a mystical Judaism and, a, and the ways in which those kinds of traditions will speak to each other in a whole new way, because they'll speak to each other from the soul energy, not from the doctrine energy. If, if, you, if, you, if I'm Jewish and you're Christian, all we have been trained to think of is, I like Jesus, or you like Jesus, I don't like Jesus, or <laughs> I like Moses, you don't like yeah, Moses. Yeah, pretty binary. Yeah. The future won't be that way. It can't be that way. It's, it's, it's impossible. So I think there'll be a new politics. I think the, this country is headed f- to try to build the first ever multi-tribal
1: democracy in which tribes don't hate each other. Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> I was with uh, this impressive CEO last week out at Stanford we took some leaders out to spend time in Palo Alto and he was the former CEO of JetBlue and the former CEO of Trammell Crow this big real estate firm sure. and he has, he has 31 grandkids and I'm just listening to this gentleman Joel Petersons his name I don't know if you ever met him but it, you look at him and you think like this is the type of human being that should be in public policy in the US Senate yeah. helping us solve problems listening to you I know a lot of people have told you that I feel like yeah. the sharpest people in America choose not to be in politics, but maybe you're painting this picture in the future where policymakers will be among the brightest in America. I hope so. I mean, we need good people in politics, and there are many good people in
2: politics. Yes. Right now, the system uh, sub optimizes their performance. Mm. Let's put it that way. Yeah. That's to put it my, my yeah. way. Yeah. And, and you have friends there, and, 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 and we want to see that, a kind of a politics that takes the average elected official and makes them great. Mm. Uh, uh, and it takes the great elected official and makes them era-defining. But uh, right now it's hard to see that. And so we've got to support our, we've got to build a constituency for good political leadership too. That's true. So what I would say, if I I were asking anybody to do anything, when you see hate-based speech in political discourse, turn it off. And when you see it on a candidate that you support, write to the candidate and ask them to stop. And when you see it in a candidate that you don't support, Uh, Tune tune them out. Mm -hmm. And when you see it from the media, whether it's right-leaning or left-leaning, when you hear hatred and vitriol and contempt and arrogance about the other side, turn it off. Mm. That's the most
1: powerful thing we can do. You watch it. You pay for it. You make it worse. Well... You are the opposite of making something worse. It seems like everything you get involved in gets better, including this program. So, Tim, thank you, thank you so much for being here today. <laughs> thank you, thank it's, you. It,
2: it's always. I want Can I close with one quick thought? Because you asked me about humility. Yes. And I was. Uh, I, I I can't remember the, the the text, but about a month and a half ago, I was in church, and the and the uh, the homilist chose to preach on humility. And, uh, and like a long story short, he said, you know, everybody talks about humility as knowing your limits. Um, respecting others, and not putting yourself forward. But he said humility is also, and he had some derivative of the term, humility is also knowing your gift. Uh, That real humility is knowing your gift and knowing the limits of your gift, but not exchanging one for the other. Okay. Uh, And in my view, that's how humility becomes a quality that can create, instead of becoming a doormat, becoming a doorway because you have the strength to know of your own capacity to yeah, I open think doors true. to other people, right. the, the but the we're humility good to know that it's not about you.
1: For sure. Yeah.
2: Anyway, I hope it's you great get reminder. many, many guests that bring that kind of quality to the discussion and well, that your you listeners have
1: will resonate. really upped the, uh, the standard for that. So thank you thank for you. being with us today and wishing you the best in all your
0: continued work. Thank you. Thanks okay. for having me. Thank you for listening to the Up To Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe via your podcast platform of choice. To receive our newsletter, suggest speakers, and give your candid feedback, please email Adam directly at adam at uptofoundation.org. We would love to hear from you. The Up To Podcast is produced by the BL Media Group right outside of the nation's capital in Washington, D.C. See you next time.